0: Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. While this is a very joyful Sunday, as you can already tell, and there are some more photographs of pets to come and a special prayer. This is also, though, for our nation and our province and the city of London a sad time. Once again, we have seen the brutality of human behavior and how it has affected innocent lives. Regardless of the faith and the tradition and the race and the background of people, as a nation, we should all treat each other with the greatest respect and love. The Apostle Paul had a dictum about the church. He said, when one part of the church hurts the body of Christ, all the parts hurt. Well, that applies to a nation as well. And our hearts go out to those who are mourning and grieving within the Muslim community. This is not the desire that any of us should have on the basis of our faith and our common humanity. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, in this joyful celebration of the wonder of your creation, of the gift of our pets and of animals and all creatures, great and small, Lord, we hope that your word, though, may speak to us now, a word of comfort and strength, of repentance and of joy. May my words be so filled in Jesus' name. Amen. The bus driver made an announcement. He said, I'm sorry, friends, we're not going to be able to stop in Jerusalem tonight. Unfortunately, we're about to encounter a sandstorm and we're going to have to pull off into another hotel and another town to find safety. We were driving, Merrill and I, in a tour from Elat to Jerusalem. But this sandstorm came up and we had to pull off in the town of Arad, which is on the very edge of the Negev Desert, not very far from Beersheba. And as we approached the hotel, a frightening scene came. You could see absolutely Nothing, not the roads, not the sky, not even out of the windows. And there we were stuck in the middle of nowhere on the borders of the Negev, having to climb out of our bus in the midst of a sandstorm. If you think a snowstorm is hard, believe you me, a sandstorm is even harder. Every bit of sand gets into your mouth and your eyes. We stayed in the hotel, the power went on and off sometimes, we had something to eat, but there was a wind that was very strong all night long, buffeting the windows. And at one point we heard a scratching at the window, and we looked out to see what it was, and there was a donkey pressed against the window with his head turned towards the wall to protect himself or herself from the wind and the sand. She was completely covered as was the whole scene outside. And yet she came for protection. And we looked at her and we felt passion for her. It was almost as if in that moment we were keeping each other company. It was a beautiful moment but it was also a beautiful moment in a dangerous time. And my mind has always, whenever I have read our psalm this morning that Chris read for us beautifully, Psalm 126, and we come to that wonderful line about the Lord and the Lord's comfort. Restore, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses, of the Negev, like the watercourses of the Negev. The Negev, as a desert, is often known for its storms and its sand. And it is famous right in biblical times. It was known to be dry. The word Negev implies that. It's in the south, in the hotter part of the country. But there were also these watercourses, as they called them, And these watercourses are really streams that during the dry season are completely arid and have no water in them. But in the rainy season become this beautiful tributary, often going down towards the Dead Sea. They're filled with water and they restore everything that is around. It's a form of irrigation. And the psalmist and all the believers saw that in these watercourses, God's provision in the midst of dryness and barrenness, in the midst of the storms and the dryness of life. It's a beautiful image. Even to this day, Kibbutzim are built in that area, precisely because of the irrigation of the watercourses, even on the edge of the Negev. But the Bible is full of imagery of God providing water to restore and to renew those who are dry, those who are in need, to restore both creation, but also to restore the people. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the book of Ezekiel. And there is a fabulous vision of Ezekiel. And his vision is about the people of Israel coming back to Israel after the exile. He writes this. Listen to the language again of water and restoration. Son of man, do you see this, God says. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Jesus, in John's gospel, uses a very similar phrase in chapter 7, verse 38. He talks about the streams of living water, referring, of course, to himself as well as the acts and the works of God. So in biblical times, there is this very strong belief that the streams of living water are a sign of God's provision, not only for people who live with physical dryness in the arid deserts, but who live in a spiritual dryness and a barrenness. The psalm, this one, was written right after the people had returned from exile in 538 B.C., and they were experiencing great barrenness both spiritually and socially and politically and morally and physically on all levels. They had lived in exile for 70 years. And here we go again, 70 appears as it has done in our last two sermons with the number of people who were in Moses' tent and the number of disciples that Jesus called. This 70 is then a complete number and represents a totality of experience. The 70 years then meant more than just 70 actual years. It meant that the people themselves had lived in exile, away from each other, away from their God, away from the things that were meaningful for them. But now the psalmist is singing a song And he writes the song of the people returning. Restore our fortune, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. Come and refresh us. Come and make us new. I think many people feel that they have had and that we are experiencing an exile of sorts over the last year and a half. After all, we have not been able to come to our place of worship. Exiles weren't allowed to go to their temple. We have not been able to have community and meet with one another, even sometimes those who are closest to us. The same with the exiles, whose families were often separated. And we haven't been able to celebrate, and I think this is important, the festivals that make our faith so important that express our love for the birth of Jesus at Christmas or the resurrection of Jesus at Easter, when we can be extravagant and have meals and have family and have faith, well, the exiles in biblical times were not given those opportunities either. So it's as if this psalm is talking to us, isn't it? Restore our fortunes, O Lord like the watercourses of the Negev." Well, this song, this biblical song, talks very much about the past, about the past. And really good songs are able to elicit emotions and memories of the past. Paul McCartney once, when being interviewed about writing his piece, Penny Lane, talked about how he wrote it because of a barber that he would go to to have his hair cut. I know it's a sore point with all of us right now, but he was able to go to his barber and have his hair cut. And the barber would take photographs of all the people whose heads of hair he had cut and he would put them on the wall. And there was this sense of remembrance and memory of people who had been part of the life of the barber. Penny Lane says McCartney, was a walk down memory lane, really, a walk down a remembrance of all of those people. That's what a song of memory does. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's trying to capture a memory where the mouths would be able to sing praises, where the tongues could speak boldly, where the nation where the nation was the envy of the world, where God had done great things for the people and rejoiced in all the things that God had done. And I've thought about this because what we have here is a deep sense, a wistful sense on the part of the Psalmist for those days when God was glorious and mouths could sing and the nation was envied by everyone. But the exile had cut that down. And I think in many ways, our lives have to some extent, even during COVID, been cut down. And by being cut down, I mean, look, we've always as a nation prided ourselves, have we not, of often being the peacekeepers, of, of having a history which we think has been sort of inclusive and, and the welcoming of people. Uh, we like to pride ourselves on all the great achievements that we have done, and rightly so if they are achievements. But over the last week or two, we've had a crisis like the people of Israel did during the exile. And they say, could we have done what we have done? I mean, could as a nation, we really do these things? Can we do these things to indigenous people? Do, Do we still do as citizens, even if it's one citizen, an act of violence against a group of people just for their faith? So like the exiles, we might sing a song of the past, but at the same time recognize that we ourselves need to change. And I think one of the things that we need to understand and to appreciate is that we have not always either appreciated the things that we have. There is a sense in which we have become complacent. And maybe COVID shattered us from that. I read just this last week, the speech to the graduation class of Boston College. This was in May by David Brooks, the writer from the New York Times. And there were a couple of things that he said, and this one I want to stand out for you. He said to them, and he's almost being quizzical and wistful and comical. He says, I don't know about you, but I'm going to try to be the world's best appreciator. I'm going to try to deeply appreciate all the things I took for granted. All the things that didn't used to seem fun are suddenly going to seem fun. Not being able to catch the bartender's attention because the bar is packed. That'll seem like fun. I'm a Mets fan, but going to a Yankees game will seem fun so long as they lose. Going to a wedding will be fun, even when I think the couple are making a mistake. Going to age-inappropriate concerts will be fun. I don't care if you don't want a Don Boomer in your Cardi B concert. I'm going anyway. Well, a lot of things are there for us to appreciate But as St. Augustine said, some desires are higher than other desires. In a world of plenty, when we have so much, it's probably going to be necessary to sit down with a piece of paper and rank the desires of our heart, and then make sure that your schedule matches your rankings and that you have a deep sense of appreciation. What great words for a graduating class, but also what great words for us now, and how great a words they were for those who were in exile. To not take for granted the things that we've had in the past, but to recognize that maybe as we go forward, in a sense of appreciation and gratitude, we should understand what god has truly blessed us with restore o oh lord our fortunes our fortunes like the watercourses of the negev but this poem this song was also about the present as i said for 18 months we feel like exiles and there might be a few months longer There will be bumpy roads along the way. We're unsure what's going to happen. And many of you, I know, feel kind of a spiritual dryness and barrenness as a result of this. And that you want and you pray for for God now to help deal with us and to restore us and to restore our fortunes like the watercourses of the Negev. But just like the people of Israel, for that to happen, maybe we ourselves in our own hearts and minds need to change. It's not just about sitting back and hoping that everything will return to the way that it was. No, in the present, we should very much be looking also to the future. We should be looking to see how the world that is going to emerge from all of this is going to be a better place. You and I should be part of that discussion. You and I should be seeking the wisdom and the guidance of the Lord as to what kind of a world it's going to be as we return from this period of exile. David Brooks went on to these students, and I must admit this was the passage that really shattered me and really brought, came to my attention. His concluding words to the students were this, this is great. He says, this was a school I remind you that was built on the resurrection. The stone moved, the tomb was empty. This was a school built on a death and a waiting and a risen Christ. Maybe I shouldn't quote a Presbyterian here in a Catholic university, but my friend Tim Keller points out that this resurrection story is a story of hope and awakening, glorious hope, certain hope, subversive hope, hope in the presence of joy and hope in the presence of suffering. The resurrection story is a story that we're guided by, inspired by and given hope by in a moment of national recovery in reawakening. After a resurrection, says Brooks, things have a tendency not to go back to the way they used to be. The teaching of the resurrection is that everything gets inverted. To find yourself, you have to lose yourself. To gain power, you have to give up yourself. Salvation comes through the weakness of repentance. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride, and failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility. Inversion follows inversion. God chooses the poor over the rich, the foolish over the wise, and the meek over the proud. Wow. Wow. God bless David Brooks. He's right, you know. He's right. We are always people of the resurrection. And while the glorious hope of those that were in exile in biblical times before the life of Jesus was, that they prayed, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. We who believe in the living water, the living stream, Jesus Christ, know that it is in him that we find that restored life, and that we find God in the present preparing us for the future. Which brings me finally to the future. There's a beautiful line in here that has led to many songs that those who will sow in tears will reap in joy. The tears are the waters of repentance and sorrow but they will reap in joy. God will transform them and change them. And I believe with the psalmist that God's going to do that. And I believe if we're willing to repent, if we're willing to turn our hearts to God, he can help bring us through this in a beautiful and a mighty way. There's a story I was reading about Trinidad and Tobago. Many years ago, uh, Trinidad and Tobago had a problem with leprosy. And one of the ways in which they dealt with this was to put a lot of the lepers on an island in isolation by themselves. Quite an image. And often the only people who would go and take care of them were actually Christians who would provide health, and spiritual nourishment, and hope, and healing, and bandage their wounds, and look after their souls. And these Christians, including a man called Pastor Hinton, risked himself in doing this. A lot of those who were lepers, though, at one time in their life before they contracted leprosy, had been ordinary citizens attending worship services, being like everybody else on the islands but now they're isolated. So Pastor Hinton decided, wouldn't it be nice to have a hymn sing in the midst of all of this? And so he starts up a hymn sing. Now, most of those that were there were healthcare givers and nurses and doctors and others, but a lot of them were lepers themselves, kept at a safe distance. But he asked at one point, Anyone, would you like to come forward and make a suggestion of a song that we could sing? And one lady whose head had been buried under the pew, lifted it up. She was a woman whose face was eaten away by leprosy, whose ears had gone, who had lost fingers, who was severely disfigured. And she said, I would like us to sing Count Your blessings, name them one by one. One of the nurses came up to the minister afterwards and said, you'll never sing that song again, will you, pastor? And he said, oh, yes, I will. I'll just never sing it again in the same way. He was changed by what he had seen in the devastation of people living in exile in isolation, who had problems. What an image for us as we go forward into the next weeks and months ahead. As we pray fervently, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. Come like a stream of water and be with us and change us and make us more grateful than we ever were. When the storm had ended and everything had died down, we looked out the window again, and there was the donkey still. (laughs) Donkey standing against the window, but now all the sand had gone. Everything was flat. The donkey seemed very much at peace. I swear that donkey smiled at us, but Meriel and I will debate that for some time. But it was a wonderful moment. And as we went out and we got in the bus, we watched the donkey go away into a safe place, having been sheltered and protected, and going out into the Negev, hopefully finding the watercourses and the streams of water. Wow, what an image for all of those who face the barrenness of exile but find the glory of the Lord. Amen.